I, I need the whiteboard tonight. So there's someone with muscles and strength. Liana? Let's pray before we have a look at this again. We need the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for what it teaches us about yourself. What it teaches us about our, our relationship with you. And we ask that as we look at just these few verses of uh, this letter of Peter to the church, that we might be encouraged in our faith. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we're looking at tonight is one of the, if you like, more difficult ones to explain in Scripture. I like Martin Luther's explanation of it the best. Out of all the different explanations, Martin Luther says, I don't get it. That's what he said. I, I don't get it. So, um, I really, that's it. Sermon's over. That's, <laughs> kidding. Uh, what I'd like to do, one of the things when you're looking at trying to explain a passage of Scripture is to see where it comes in the whole outline of the book. And to understand a little bit about why it's been put in there. And so we're just going to very briefly do a little bit of a, a structure of 1 Peter to see where this fits. There is so much written on this little section. In some of the commentaries that you've got, each of the, the verses might have a page, but when you get here you've got 10 pages. Uh, one of the writers that I said, he said that as you go through the mounds and the mountains, of historical explanation and grammar, you eventually find the mouse of theological insight. Trying to explain that for all of that, it doesn't change a whole lot, really. And one of the reasons for that is because of what Paul's argument is. Now, if you can... It's just, I hope... They don't let me move this very often. Um... This is part of a passage that goes from chapter 2, verse 11, down to chapter 4, verse 11, if you like. It starts with beloved, dear friends, and chapter 12, verse 4, says beloved and dear friends. They're, they're two main segments. So this section that we're reading on is somewhere actually in here. All right? And this whole section here is talking, if you like, about the need for people to that as they abstain from sin, there will be suffering and there will be victory. Now, for the last little while, we've been looking at the section from here to here, where we've mainly been looking at suffering. How, when we live a particular good life, we must suffer because the world doesn't understand living a good life. They, they don't get that. And a lot of what Paul's argument has to say is trying to tell people that when you suffer, make sure that you do it because you're living life. You're being good. And right in the middle of this section, I'll get the verses so that I don't make a mistake here, chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, we have this big talk about Christ as the example of suffering. And he, he shows that from Christ's example of suffering, the way he suffered silently, he did good. Not only are we saved, 
but this should be the model for our dealing with people who hassle us for our good life. That we who are aliens and strangers in this world should do this. Just very quickly, he starts off here with live good lives so that God is glorified. If you like, the same stuff comes up down here, down the bottom here, that God might be glorified, way down in chapter 4, verse 11. You might be able to read it, but you'll get the sense of what we're doing. And we've discussed this section in here over the last few weeks. We talked about you have to submit to everyone. And then he gave the examples of slaves. And then last week we looked at the examples of wives. And we didn't really look at the examples of... And then we discussed how he goes back again and says how everyone has to live in a particular way so that their lives will shine forth the blessing of God or, or, or the glory of God. They will be good. And at the end of last week... We read this passage from verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And there's a little bit of a change here. In all of this aspect here he's been talking about the suffering that we undergo like Christ because we live a life which is in tune and in line with being Christ's children. But now he says not only that, but you have to recognise that God sees things differently from the world sees them. Whilst he brings judgement when you go against him, when you're in line with Christ, he brings victory and he brings blessing. And so you have this comment here of blessing. And then we've got a similar type pattern to come down to the end of this section. So, he talks about how Everyone suffers and blessing comes. But then he talks about we have to give a reason for our hope. In other words, we have this understanding that when we suffer in a particular way, because we're doing good, people will be against us but they'll question how we can live like that. He says, there's the time for you to explain to them. You're not doing it because you enjoy pain, but you're doing it because there's victory at the end. You have a hope. What Christ has done has a purpose. The suffering that Christ went through here, which is our example, leads to victory. And then we have this really difficult passage in here, which again is in chapter 3, verses 18 to... Uh, where did I put it down to? Uh, I played around with it, 22. And this is Christ as an example. Every single one, there's one more earlier on in the book of 1 Peter where he uses Christ as an example, but in every single one he goes through that central aspect of the Christian gospel which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to show that this is the example for us in our lives. And here he's used Christ's suffering and death as the example for how we undergo suffering because it produces life in the end. 
And now he comes with Christ as an example to say, as he did this for us, he died in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit. His whole point is that there is victory in what Christ did. Christ proclaimed his victory and all is under submission now to him. His death had a purpose. His suffering had an outcome and that is our hope. This is the reason that we have this. And next week we again kind of go backwards this way where we live in victory. We'll talk about that next week. And then he goes about the fact that the end is near. So if you like, the blessing is near. And there's this structure involved. Now why, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because the difficult part that we have, the part that people are playing around with, is when we get down to this section in here. Christ is an example. Let me give you an off-topic example. What's the story of the one sheep that the shepherd goes and saves about? What's the purpose of that? We won't ask you because we'll get all sorts of different comments, but I've asked a number of people throughout the week. And the answer seems to be that God seeks out to save people. He will come wherever you are and bring you home. Now that's beautiful. That really, really is. But if you look at why Jesus uses the parable, he says, this shows us that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't. Need repenting. They're close, they're similar, but the same story can have lots of meanings and Jesus applies it to this one. So when we come down to looking at this example that he has of Christ, of Christ being raised to life, if you want, being made alive in the spirit, he has a point. We can go off on lots of different tangents about what this possibly might mean. But in the end, Peter is using it for one example. He wants to highlight Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross for us to proclaim victory. What he did was victorious. Because he wants that to be our attitude. That as we undergo suffering in this world as aliens, as we live a good life and people don't understand that, yes, we are to do it in quietness and humility and love, but we also have to have in our mind that we do it because we're on the side of the victorious king. And the outcome of living for Jesus is being with him forever. The outcome of living for Jesus is being blessed by him. The outcome is us too being raised to life like Christ was raised to life. That's kind of the prelude to explaining how we now look at this passage. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. <sighs> Let me start at verse 12, which is a little bit of what we did last week and then come on to this one. But just to show the first point really is here, is that there is a future blessing and there is future victory. Hopefully we've already outlined that. It won't take a whole lot of time. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous 
and his ears are attentive to their prayers. Remember, he's just talked to about husbands here and how if a husband does not behave in a righteous manner, he won't be listened to. He's bringing back his previous example to highlight something again, to say that God looks at those people who are living according to the way of his son. He's just said, way up good lives. And now he's trying to, God looks at those who live good lives. Yes, the world looks at you and they push you aside and they think you're a freak. But God looks on you and the whole way that he says he looks on you it's as he looks on you with favour he wants his readers to understand that though the world condemns them for their attitude God looks at them with favour they will be blessing for them it goes on in verse 13 well he ends off verse 12 but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil so there's this this dichotomy, if you like. You are either in those that are judged and evil and condemned or you are in those who are blessed and welcomed and are victorious. He says, you live that righteous life on the strength of being a child of Christ and victory is yours. Blessing is yours. Wonder is yours. God's love is yours. Otherwise, condemnation. God's face is against you. Verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, going back to what he's talked about here, even if you should, note this is his comment, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. In other words, understand that even though you condemn them, they condemn you, God lifts you up. And when you compare those two, God wins every time. He's trying to say you need to be assured that in Christ Jesus you have victory. There is a future victory and a future blessing for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Verses 15 and 16 and 17. He says that this is going to cause us, we need to understand this in such a way that we can present this to other people. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is what our attitude is supposed to be. That in that scenario, the victory of Christ is ours, comes with our relationship with Christ, where we lift him up as our King, as our Lord. He is the one in whose kingdom we live. And then he says, Therefore, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, when people come to you and say, why do you live like that? How can you live like that in this world with everything that's going on? Why do you behave in such a way? It's contrary to the way our world operates. You need to understand the message of Christ in such a way, you must be central, if you like, to your being, that you can actually explain it to them. You can actually say, well, the reason... (laughs) I live like this. He says, I have a hope for the future. I have a hope for eternal life. I am going to be victorious. My life at death doesn't go down towards God's judgment against me, but rather towards victory because of what Christ has done. We need to be prepared to speak, to share. What I thought we'd do is have a very small break. I'm going to show a mini-movie. 
I showed this at the youth group the other night. You're going to have to pay a fair amount of attention. It's very, very quick. Explaining why it is that we can't just live a good life, but we also have to be prepared to speak it. So it'll come up on the screen. As Christians, when people bring up the topic of evangelism, what do you think that means? Well, in my experience, people usually end up in one of two camps. Camp 1 says you need to talk about Jesus and live a life that's consistent with what you believe, and Camp 2 says all you have to do is live a good life. It'll speak for itself. Well, first of all, it's a big jump to assume that anyone can live a good life, don't you think? I mean, Romans 3.10-11 says, None is righteous, no, not one, and no one does good, not even one. That doesn't convince you. In Mark 10, a man comes up to Jesus and kneels down before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, Promptly with, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, not only is Jesus suddenly claiming to be God here, he's making it pretty clear that nobody is good except for him, hence the no one is good part. But this is the sideshow of the main event, folks, so step right up and let's get down to it. And let's assume Kent 2 says good life. They just mean if you live a visible, godly life, people will just by watching you understand all they need to know about God. Okay, let's play that out, shall we? But let's ask Bruce if he can help us. Hey, Bruce, hey. So Bruce grabs a man, a Jehovah's Witness, and a Christian, and he tells you to follow each of those folks around, and after simply watching them, you'll know all you need to know about God. Now, each goes to a place every week and sits among like-minded folks. Each person prays, each treats you with respect, each loves his family, is honest with his money. He's basically a nice person. So, which God do you pick based on just watching? Who's right? How do you know? Who do you compare unless they tell you why they do what they do? Talking, it seems, becomes critical. No doubt nature reveals much about the invisible attributes of God, but how do you know exactly what he requires of you? I mean, who he really is and what his ultimate plan is without some kind of specific revelation from him? I mean, how would you know if your mother wanted you to paint the left wall of the garage red if it wasn't specifically communicated to you in some way, usually by writing a note or speaking to you? So, what did God do in the best way to communicate the specifics of his word? Did he send him purposes to do a modern dance? Did he draw a word? pictures in the clouds. No. To communicate precisely the things he wanted you to know, he intervened throughout history and spoke through men, openly moving some of them to write the Bible. That is, he spoke and he wrote a How do we know if God created the heavens and the earth in six days? They have an earth that created in a perfect world, but their rebellion brought sin and death into the world. But it's the grace of God through faith in Jesus alone that saves us. How would you know that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave? How would you know any detail about God and his word was clear if nobody told us? Well, we wouldn't. We couldn't. And that's why you got to tell people things. You, you just can't hope people will catch on by watching you live a so-called good life, it's just not enough. Ultimately, you got to tell them why you live that way. If they just take my word for it, my inquiring, believing, being the misfits, we're all in one team. And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? Jesus himself definitively declares in Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. It's kind of hard to baptize in the name of somebody without actually saying the name. Man, it's pretty difficult to teach people to observe commandments without telling them what those commandments are, right? I mean, I could go on until my mouth falls off, but suffice to say, Christians are commanded to live a life worthy of the calling, which irrefutably includes things like giving reasons and answers to our hope and engaging in conversation about Christ. So this idea that you never have to speak out about your faith and all you have to do is live a good life, and people will catch on with Bendiba. Adios. Fair enough? Yeah? In other words, you've got to be able to speak it out. You've got to know it, share it. And that's what he says. Now what Peter goes on to say is not only you have to be prepared to give an answer, and I would love to stop now and see if each of you could share with the person next to you that hope that you have. Share the gospel with each other. Because it would be great to see, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. If you can't yet explain it, please prepare yourself so that if someone ever says to you, why do you live like you live? Why are you different from all the other people that I know? You have an answer. If you don't have that, if you're not clear on what that is, 
then I suggest you, you find some answers to that. A good way to do that might be to do the Alpha course. The Alpha course is starting in a couple of weeks. It's, it's a seven weeks trying to explain the Christian faith in a non-confrontational way to show people this is what God says in his word. This is who Jesus is in an easily understood way. So on Tuesdays from, I think it's the 16th of April, in the evenings, if you're free and you're not comfortable to confidently share the hope that you have, feel free to join us and do the Alpha course. It's a good way to learn how to do that. But Peter goes on and says, when you do this, you have to make certain that you do it with gentleness and respect. Don't switch off your good deeds, your humility, your gentleness, your love, just because you're telling them the gospel. Don't all of a sudden start to become an argumentative person. Be understanding. Be compassionate. Be gentle. Be respectful. They'll think different from you. Acknowledge that. Your job is not to convince them of the hope that is within you. Your job is to be able to give an answer to the hope that is within you. The job of convicting them and convincing them and turning them around the other way is the work of the Holy Spirit. If they ask us a question, we give an answer to that. But we're not combative. We're gentle and we're gracious and we're respectful. Keeping a clear conscience. There's a number of ways that they talk about this, but I think it's fair enough to say that he's tying in everything that he said beforehand. He says, don't, don't be hypocritical. What you're saying about Christ should be evident in your experience. You should be expressing that which is true in you. That doesn't mean that you can't express your difficulties in living it out. But if you truly don't believe it, then all you're doing is giving them codswallop. Because you don't yourself hold this to be fact. Do it gently, do it respectfully, and share with them the honesty and truth that's in your heart. This is your relationship with Jesus. This is what you understand from the scriptures. And if you don't quite get an answer to them, say, look, can we work it out together? Be honest. Be truthful. Why? So that, next one, those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Those who question the way that you live, when you've explained it to them, will understand why you live like that and they will be ashamed of the things that they've said. In other words, because of your whole attitude in presenting it and the truth that you share, it will impact their life in such a way as they themselves begin to have a change in behaviour. He goes on to say in verse 17, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Do the good, have a clear conscience, be able to present that and the outcome is better. 
and he, he, he's kind of tying this up with this whole idea that we have victory in Christ. We have blessing in Christ. Verse 18. And we now come to that central section of explanation, Christ as an example. One of the harder passages. Before we go into having a quick look at that as an example of Christ, I thought I would go through um, a list that I found that kind of says some of the things that we need to do when we're handling text that, that are difficult because you really have to read a whole lot of lots and lots of verbiage to try and get to the bottom of all the different ways you can possibly translate this. Different tenses of the Greek, different extraneous wisdom literature from the book of Enoch, etc., etc., etc. And to go through all of that to find stuff means it really is some pretty hard stuff to go through. I've been pondering it all week and I still like Luther's answer the best. I don't get it. Anyway, these are some of the things. Number one, these are just whenever you come up with some hard text, there's one next week as well, so this is just prelude. Recognise that we're, we're in pretty good company when we find some text or truths hard to handle. The prophets struggled with the things that were revealed to them, and Peter says that earlier in this book. They struggled with it. The disciples failed to understand what the Lord had to say. Peter, <laughs> Peter thinks that Paul's writings are difficult. Peter, who wrote this, didn't get what Paul was saying sometimes. So I suppose you know, the question would be, why, why should we expect to understand all the things pertaining to an infinite God? How should we expect to do that? Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that we can't pick up and understand what Peter is saying in this passage. Because even, even at this point, if I don't get everything that's going to come in looking at these verses, we can understand what Peter's saying. Peter's saying Christ was victorious. We can pick up his, his explanation. But all the little facets of the words and the commas and everything else, we might not get all of that. We're in good company when we do that. Second thing to know when we're looking at passages like this, don't feel compelled that you have to have a satisfactory explanation for every text in the Bible. Don't think you have to understand and have a solution to every biblical problem. I mean, some of the tough texts are there, they humble us. And we try as hard as we will to put God into a box and we still don't get it. It is good for us to still, if you like, have this sense of mystery of Scripture and to understand that we can't put God into this sort of dictionary where every single thing we can explain. I don't know, I've got kids. Sometimes just cause is a beautiful answer. Because they're not going to get it. They understand what I've told them to do. Go do that. They get that. They say, why? Just cause. And some scriptures like that. Just cause. What we need to do is take it at its face value and we don't have to go into all the little bits and pieces of it. To me, this might be one of them. Uh What do I know? Christ's death, 
he was raised to new life, he was made alive in the spirit and he proclaimed his victory. To whom? Well, that's what we're going to get to. When? Well, that's what we're going to get to. For what purpose? Well, that's what we're going to get to. But in some ways, Peter doesn't expound necessarily all of that for us in a way that we can comprehend, but he does show us that Christ was victorious and that's what we need to grasp hold of. Did I say grasp? Grasp hold of. Number three. Problem passages should not be the basis of new and novel doctrines or interpretations. I don't know. <laughs> I was reading commentary after commentary through the week and going on the web and there were people who say, well, this is this, 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 this or this and I disagree with all of them, it's this. It's not an excuse for us to come up with something that's absolutely novel and new. It should match in with the rest of Scripture, be consistent with the way that the Scriptures tell it and everything else. So I suppose what we're saying there is is never accept a doctrine solely on a problem text. Any truth that's vital to understanding in Scripture is normally taught very clearly. So let me give an example. One of the things that this passage is used to teach on is that Jesus went to talk to those people who were already dead and he preached the gospel to them to give them a chance to repent and to come to faith. Now that's contrary to all of scripture. So if that's the explanation that you end up with with this, it's, it's saying something which is different from is said in the rest of scripture. And, and so you would, you would say something that novel and that revolutionary and that weird is more likely in Scripture to be taught very, very clearly. In fact, it's definitely going to be taught very, very clearly. And so when I'm looking at that as a passage, if that's my explanation, I have to say, all right, I'm going to take that and I'm going to put that over on the side. Unless there is evidence for that elsewhere in Scripture, I'm going to have to say, it's not that one. Does that all make sense? Number four, be fairly suspect of any interpretation of a difficult text like this one or, or the one in, in chapter four, which is a little bit, uh, chapter four verse six, um, which don't have a broad acceptance throughout the history of the church. In other words, if you're the only Christian person who's read this passage and says this is what it means, God's blessed you with this special insight, you probably got it wrong. In other words, God's Holy Spirit has been guiding people into all truth since the scriptures were given to us. And it's unlikely. You know, as I'm reading it, you're thinking, ah, that's a good idea. No one's thought of that. And then this thought comes to me. I can't imagine that the Holy Spirit has waited 2,000 whatever years just so David can find this theological truth and present it to the world. It's not likely to be like that. All right? It would normally have that God's people throughout history have understood what this is saying. Number five. Whatever conclusion you reach, and I know some people can go away and study this, and God bless you. Right? Whatever conclusion you reach, don't be too dogmatic about it. There are loving, godly Christian people who are going to come up with a different conclusion to you. People who love the Lord Jesus and want to follow him and are seeking to obey his will perfectly according to what's written in scripture. 
they're seeking the Holy Spirit to guide them and they've done all the study and they have a different answer. So don't fight with them over it. You might believe this is what it says and they think this. Have a discussion, have a conversation, but don't be dogmatic. Don't let it lead you into confrontation and conflict. Number six. Oh, there's only eight, you'll be pleased to note. Avoid becoming obsessed with the little tiny bits and miss the big picture. I suppose in Jesus' words, the Pharisees, they, they strained out the gnats and they swallowed the camel. They tried to get down to the nitty-bitty little tiny bits of counting how many parsley leaves was a tenth and failed to observe the law that God had put before them to be generous and to tithe and to give to him. When we get to looking at this example, don't strain too much to, to force a particular reading from it. Look at the big picture and, and, and take that because in the essence that's what Peter was writing about. Number seven. If you're looking to interpret this text, see if there's any other texts which are similar in teaching. And generally we interpret the more obscure texts in light of those that are clearer. So for example, and I'm not going to go into this tonight, but it's just for your interest. Paul writes something on a similar line in 1 Timothy. And what he talks about in 1 Timothy is used a little bit differently, but it's a lot clearer what he says. And so when you look at those two, that should guide us that this which is clear should help us understand a little bit of that which is a bit obscure. That's the way that it goes. And then the last point. When you've examined everything, make sure you choose the interpretation. I suppose this is the one that I'm focusing on tonight. Make sure you choose the interpretation that best fits the context, the argument of the entire book, and your understanding of biblical theology. Don't pick the wacky one that's a way outlier, if that makes sense. See the one which is consistent with the teaching of Scripture, and particularly matches the book. Having said all of that, let's quickly go into it. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? This is Christ as an example. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. This is the victory. For one second, Peter puts us in with, lumps us up with everybody else who is pouring suffering upon Jesus. And the outcome of that is to bring us to victory, to bring us to God. This is what we have as the example of Christ. But then he goes on and gives a more specific example. He was put to death in the body, but was victorious. He was made alive in the spirit. All of that we understand. That makes sense. What Christ did on the cross was to, reveal, was to rescue us from the power of sin so that we can have a relationship with God. And the evidence of this, that this is true, this is the hope that we have, is that Christ who is dead in the flesh was made alive in the spirit. This is one of the things that is a part of our hope. Like Christ, he's our example. And then we have the verses that people worry about. Here we go. Verse 19. After being made alive, or in the aliveness of his spirit, in the spirit, 
some say, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people ate in all were saved through water. So basically what they say is that Jesus was dead in the flesh and made alive in the spirit and talking about being alive in the spirit he went and preached although the word is proclaimed he went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. Which spirits? Well the ones who were in the time of Noah. So these are the questions that people ask. When did Jesus do this? Did he do it in that period between when he died and when he went to heaven in there? Did he go and talk to the spirits who were imprisoned in the time of Noah? Let's look at that for a second. If he did, you don't have to remember all of this by the way, but it's interesting to see how people's minds work. Huh? If he did, which spirits were imprisoned in the time of Noah? Well, it wasn't Noah. Right? So we only have two other options. It's the dudes that died in the time of Noah, all those got drowned. Them. They would be in prison. Where would that be? Not quite sure. Either in hell, which means they've already had their judgment, or some other prison. Yeah. Questionable. Alright, so that, that's one of the things that happened. The other option that people say is, well you know how in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God came and had intimate relations with the daughters of men? Well the understanding is that those spirits, in other words angels, procreated with people and they had offspring. Alright? And those were the one reason why Jesus brought, God brought the flood to wipe out that race of giants, Nephilim, whom Goliath seemed to be one like them. Alright? To wipe them out off the face of the earth and they were put in prison. In other words, the spirits were put in prison, either the angels or the offspring, but more likely they think the angels. Right? They were in spirit, in, in, in prison, and they were condemned because they had forsaken what God had told them to do. They were part of the evil angels, or they were another rebellion of the good angels, which listen to some people. Right? And then you've got the problem, either he goes to talk to the people who died in that time, what's he going to say to them? Right? They've been dead for close on two grand, two thousand years. What is he going to say? You didn't listen to Noah for 120 years, but I'm here to give you a second chance. If you want, you can come to faith. Well, that doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the gospel. Did he go to say, I won? Possible. But why did he pick those dudes? I, I don't understand. Well, if he's going to go to the this way I say I'm with Luther I don't get it he goes to the angels who came and slept with the daughters of men because they were really hot and he says what's he going to say to them well they can't come to faith because it says that angels really don't have the opportunity of being saved so he's not going to go and tell them that they can be saved so he's definitely going to go and tell them that he won he's victorious and they have to be in submission to him possible Augustine said no this is a comment on the fact that it was the Spirit of Christ who was talking through Noah to the people in his day. So it's not him doing it now, but it's a reflection of the fact that they had an opportunity then 
and they condemned Noah. So in other words, the Spirit of Christ was speaking in Noah when he said for 120 years to these guys, repent, 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 and they didn't. They had an opportunity and they didn't repent. But some people were saved and they were those who were in the ark, Noah and his family. Well, there's some issues that are good with that in the sense that, yeah, if you go earlier on in 1 Peter, when Peter says, he says that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the prophets when they shared about him. This is early on in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. So it's possible. But how does that fit in with the comment that he's making that he was dead in the flesh and has been made alive in the Spirit? There's this idea that we are proclaiming victory. Jesus has won. Yes, there was victory back then. Noah was saved. But this is all the example of Christ and what happened with Christ. Which one is it? I don't know. Sometimes I think Augustine was right. He was talking about the Spirit of Christ back in, in things. But yes, I don't really get that. I don't really, this is just me. I'm just giving you, I'm just kind of waffling a little bit for the moment. I don't think he was talking to the people who died at this time to give them a second opportunity. That's just out. I don't think he was coming and proclaiming victory to them above everyone else in mankind. Although that's probably one of the more possible ones. The general evangelical consensus of scholars in the last 15 years, if you're interested, is he was talking to the angels who committed the sin with the sons and daughters of Adam, with the daughters of Adam. That's the general consensus of what he was doing. Whichever one it is, if you're interested, I'd like to give you some books to read. What it's saying is, I think, that Jesus went to whomever to proclaim victory. Why did he pick Noah? Well, it's a little bit easier for me. See, in that time in the Roman world, there were lots of things that people were really fascinated with. And there's enough evidence to say that to the people that Peter was writing in that era, there was a fascination with myths, and particularly with myths of floods. Do you know how we go through those cycles? You know, if I were to give an example in church 10 years ago about evil, I would have talked about wizards. Because Harry Potter was number one on the list. Five years ago, if I wanted to talk about evil, I would talk about vampires. Alright? I don't know what it is at the moment. Is it the undead? Zombies, you know? I don't know. But people would understand his example. Basically what he's saying is Jesus went and proclaimed to whomever that he had been victorious. Because what he's wanting to say to the people to whom he's writing is this victory is assured. It's so assured it's been proclaimed. And he goes on the interesting thing in verse 22. We'll jump down a little bit. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ now who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with what? With angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus Christ proclaims that and he picks an example of these people of Noah who it has been proclaimed to them because people will pick up their ears and listen. I think that's possibly why he does it. But he also does it because he wants to bring in 
this concept of baptism, which is going to come a little bit later on. He says this in verse 21. End of verse 20 and 21. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism, or this water symbolizes immersion, that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience with God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, some people read this passage, we're not going to go into it tonight because I think we're safe on that one, that it's not saying that we're saved through baptism, but what it is talking about is this immersion in Christ, this clear conscience that we've been given through what Christ has done, This is what sets us apart. In the same way, and he wants to bring this example up, that Noah and his people were saved and the others weren't. What happened in that sense, whether it was to the the angels or the people, whenever it was, they were the ones who were different from Noah and his family. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus' life that he gives proclaim to this group of people this group have been saved what I have done is victorious and in the same way there's that stark difference between those who were saved and those who were condemned and drowned Jesus is saying that we need to understand that we have victory that stark difference of victory that we have in Christ Jesus. He then goes on, and what we're going to look at next week is the the next part of this verse here, to talk about the outworking of this in our life. What would I like you to take away from this? Firstly, going back to the very beginning, our victory is assured. No matter what circumstances of life we go through, no matter how people cause us discomfort, suffering, condemnation to make us feel bad, unworthy, wrong when we live according to what Christ wants us to in a world that doesn't understand Christ. We can be bolstered. We can be encouraged by the fact that we have victory. That even though they condemn us, God saves us. Even though they look harshly upon us, God treats us with the greatest of love and respect. He blesses us. He brings good to us. And Peter wants this to be an encouragement to us. When we're going through all those difficulties and we think it's too much for me to bear, we can take great confidence that while that is what they look at us like, God looks at us with love. God looks at us and know, and welcomes us as his children in Christ Jesus and blessed and we have a future and we are victorious. And that should be a great encouragement to us. And so he says, do not be frightened. Don't be frightened of the world. Why? Because you've won. There's nothing they can do that will take you out of the hand of God. There's nothing that they can do which will undo what Christ has done for you. You're already victorious. Live in that victory regardless of your circumstances. Secondly, 
as you do that, as you live like that, don't take that opportunity of your victory and keep it to yourself. When you start differences made between you and someone else and they bring it up or if the opportunity arrives in a, in a gracious way it can be raised by you. But if they bring it up, be prepared to give them an answer for the hope that is in you. Give them, be prepared to tell them that, well, I live like this because God looks on me with favour and I'm his child and I want to live to please him. And I know you don't like that, but he loves me and he cares for me and he saved me and I'm going to be with him forever. I have escaped the judgment that is upon everybody else. And be prepared to do that and respectfully and with a clear conscience. And then lastly, understand that this victory is assured because of what Christ has done. Because of what we've remembered tonight. What we are going to remember in a couple of weeks at Easter. That he died. He suffered. He was condemned. And this time we were on that condemning side where we put our suffering upon him and our sin upon him. But he was victorious. And that the, the foundation for our hope, the foundation for our being able to live with victory is that Christ was victorious. And that's evidenced in so many ways. But one of the ways, and this is, is, let's leave Noah out of it for a bit, is that he has been raised on high, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, where everything has been put in submission under his feet. All angels and power and authority at this time is under his feet. His kingdom has come. What he did is victorious and will be victorious for all time. And that as a foundation gives us an enormous hope that no matter what comes upon us, we can have confidence in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the death and resurrection of Christ. I thank you for his ascension and his being crowned on high. Our King, our Lord, Lord of all. And the confidence this gives us that as we are pledged in him, as we have identified with him, symbolised by our baptism, as we walk with him, he is our king, that we also are assured of victory. And Father, I pray that we might be confident to express this joy that we have in the resurrection of Christ Jesus and the victory that we have in him to a world that is lost at every opportunity that we have that we might also be a blessing to them as Christ has been a blessing to us. Father, we pray and ask all of these things in the wonderful and glorious name of Christ. Amen.